So the cold front thing is, is a big one because hunters believe, man, when it's colder, deer are on their feet and moving. And I'm sorry to say, all, you know, the millions and millions of data points and GPS collars do not support that at all. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman. And hey, deer season is finally here for for all, but maybe just a handful of you. And uh, I, I apologize to you guys. You, you, it's going to be here for you guys real soon. But uh, for the rest of you, I, I hope everyone's getting out, getting some time in the deer stand or the deer blind. Um, I, I got to spend a few days this past week with with some of the guys from First Light, as well as uh, some guys with the Southern Outdoorsman podcast on a Georgia public land hunt. And man, we just we just had a ball. Uh, hunting was tough. I'll say that um, one of the uh, Southern Outdoorsman guys did manage to to kill a buck, so that was great. We got to all get together and and help him uh, blood trail that deer and recover it. And just a uh, man, a great experience overall. I, it's always good to to get together with a, a group of like minded guys and kind of enjoy that that deer camp feel that. Unfortunately, um, these days seems harder and harder to come by, but, uh, yeah, just, I hope you guys are getting out there and, and getting to experience some of that yourself. That's, that's really what it's all about. But, uh, yeah, with deer season in full swing, I thought, man, this would be a, the perfect time to get on our chief conservation officer and wildlife biologist, Kip Adams, to bust some of those common deer hunting and deer management myths that that many of you and, and myself included have heard our whole lives. We look at things like weather factors and, and the moon and whether or not that impacts deer movement. We touch on the rut timing, you know, coal bucks, shot placement on a deer, and, and just a lot more. So this is a really kind of deer hunting, deer management focused episode. Uh, we cover a lot of topics, just kind of each one touching on them briefly. So I, I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. I know I enjoyed my conversation with Kip, and I think you'll take a lot away from what Kip has to has to say. So before we get started, though, this week's episode is brought to you by NDA partner Alps Outdoors, uh, makers of some of the best hunting packs on the market. Uh, I've been using an Alps Willow Creek pack for uh, almost a year now, I guess. And man, it's the perfect compact size to to haul, to haul all my saddle hunting gear. You know, my, it'll, my platform, my climbing sticks, a few other things I carry to the stand with me on a regular basis, without being overly bulky or heavy. Uh, so I, I, it's turned out to be kind of the perfect saddle hunting pack for me. But regardless of of what or where you hunt, hey, Alps has a pack that that's going to suit your needs. So. If you're in the market for a new hunting backpack, be sure to check out the guys at alpsoutdoors.com, and that's outdoors with a Z. Hey, we have a lot of different things going on in NDA right now, so I I wanted to just quickly touch on uh, a few of those. Uh, First, I mentioned this on the last episode, but for the month of October, we're offering a 20% discount off of our Deer Steward One online course. So if you've ever wanted to really do a deep dive into um, whitetail deer and deer management, uh, then you can do that now at a discounted rate. And 
that's going to happen again during the month of October. At the end of October, October 31st, we're going to close off registration and our Deer Steer One course will actually be shut down for a few months until we launch the uh, the new and improved version in February. So uh, if you want to take advantage of that, that discount for October, be sure to do that now. Head over to our website at DeerAssociation.com. Uh, we've also launched a new fundraiser this week that's just going to run uh, eight days. I think it's going to it'll close out next Tuesday, which is October 18th. Uh, we're giving away a Weatherby Mark V AccuMark rifle, along with a uh, a bunch of great gear from our friends at Vortex Optics. So you can check that out at DeerAssociation.com backslash Halloween. So instead of Halloween, it's Halloween. That's H-A-L-L-O-W-I-N. Uh, we've also kicked off our very popular First Light NDA membership offer. Uh, this is the second year we've done this. You're going to get an annual NDA membership. You're going to get a special NDA First Light camo cap, uh, which is, has been very popular, and a $25 digital First Light gift card that you can use online to buy any First Light gear. And you get it all for 100 bucks. So again, this was uh, really popular when we ran this last year. I think we may have ran out of hats. I can't remember, but I know we sold a bunch of them. And uh, I think they'll go quickly this year as well. So if you're interested in that, you can check it out at DeerAssociation.com backslash membership drive, or just look for that First Light NDA membership uh, banner on our homepage. And I think, guys, with that, we can jump on the phone here with Kip Adams to start busting some of those common deer hunting and deer management myths. Hey, Kip, thanks uh, for taking time out to be on the podcast here today. Before we dive into, you know, some of these popular deer hunting and, and deer management myths, I have to ask you, have you had the opportunity to, to get in a deer stand yet? Well, I have. Uh uh, Pennsylvania starts later than most states, so Pennsylvania season uh, actually opens tomorrow. So uh, oh, okay. excitement is very high here. <laughs> uh, but I did get a chance to hunt in Maryland uh, with, with my son Bo. Uh, their season starts uh, just about a month before ours, so uh, uh, a good buddy invites him down to, to hunt. I get to go, and uh, so so I have sat in a deer stand, uh, <laughs> but I haven't carried a bow yet, and uh, I'm looking forward to change that real soon. Oh yeah, but uh, your, your son had some success on that. That hunt, didn't he? I think I've he seen did, some photos. Uh, over a couple days, he he shot three does, so uh, nice. uh, a bunch of bunch of meat for the freezer. Um, certainly a ton of fun, and uh, his his trigger fingers warmed up, so uh, he's ready. <laughs> he's, he's he's ready, and, he, and he's rubbing it into his sister that uh, that he's ahead of her already on the deer tally. Uh, I bet he, he's ahead of me, and our season's been in for a couple weeks down here, so. <laughs> Uh, you had to, yeah, you had to tell him I'm, I'm jealous. I'm, I'm still working on that first one, but, <laughs> but, but yeah, there's man, there's, there's nothing like, you know, getting to experience those hunts with your kids. Uh, I, I didn't realize how much I missed it till I, I took a buddy's son this past weekend on a, a youth hunt they had on some public land here, and uh, my, my buddy took his daughter, and and so I took his son, and didn't end up shooting anything didn't end up actually we didn't end up seeing anything but but had a good time and uh like i said definitely got me missing the, all those all those youth hunts uh, that i got to spend with my kids when they were little so yeah maybe maybe someday i'll have some grandkids to take on the <laughs> take on the youth hunts there you go there you go and of course i know you mentor adults as well and uh 
So, yeah, I mean, there's there's nothing like taking oh, yeah. somebody out, you know, for the first time or, or even the second or third time. And uh, um, I certainly enjoy that from the kid end, but, uh, but I enjoy taking adults out as well. So uh, I'm glad that more hunters are doing that today. Certainly that's needed for our sport. And uh, it's pretty fun to take an adult out to see them, you know, get that excited as well, have that, that childish grin, um, at, you know, at the first deer that they see or first deer they get to shoot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, I mean, it's right up there with, if not surpasses, you know, shooting one yourself, just because, like you said, you, you get to see that that newfound excitement and remember that, you know, how that felt when when you got to experience your first deer or, or turkey or whatever the case may be. But yeah, it's it's definitely uh, definitely worth worth doing if you haven't mentored somebody. Um, yeah, you need to people need to put that on their uh, their annual to do list for every hunting season because there, there's nothing like it. Absolutely, I agree with that. But hey, let's uh, let's let's bust some of these these common hunting myths because I think you know in a lot of cases believing some of these myths can you know hinder your opportunities, maybe keep you out of the field when you should be out there hunting, or uh, you know limit your success. So I think it's uh, it's it's good to be able to go through some of these and and just talk about you know what what's fact and what's fiction. So we'll uh, we'll dive right in. Let's start with one that you actually touched on here recently in a uh, in a TikTok video uh, for uh, for our NDA TikTok channel, and I know it, it got a lot of response, a lot of views, and that was it was on what a lot of hunters refer to as that no man's land on a deer. You know that that perceived area between the between the lungs and the spine that you know when you hit it, it just doesn't doesn't typically produce a a, a lethal outcome. So can you talk about that? Does does no man's land really exist? Sure. Um, I think no man's land only exists in, uh, in the capture the flag game. Uh, remember that game you played with the kids <laughs> where you had no man's land was yeah. in between the two sides? Uh, so it certainly exists there. It does not exist on a deer or at least not between the, the lungs and the spine. And one of the cool things today is, you know, hunters know so much more about deer than, than we've ever known before, you know, because of all the research, because of, you know, there's just so much more opportunity to share this information in the past. And then that's a good thing. And, uh, and as long, you know, right along with that, we know more about anatomy today than ever before. So um, I have heard countless hunters, I'm sure at some point I even, even talked about the, you know, no man's land or, or that dead zone. Um, the reality of it is most people can look at a deer and if you ask them to draw in the spine, they draw the spine right along the top of the back because you think, you know, that's where it is. But in reality, it's not. The spine is way down in a deer's body and right behind, you know, where the neck uh, meets the, the chest and it goes into the shoulders. The spine is down almost halfway through the body. You know, it's down over a third and then it runs up a little bit. But suffice to say, it's not anywhere near the top of the back. The spine has long projections that come off it that run to the top of the back but the actual backbone of the spine itself is way down in the body and the lungs come right up and touch that. So you can shoot a deer, you know, in some cases, you know, a couple inches below the top of the back, but still be above the spine. Now that is what many people would, would you know, incorrectly call the, the dead zone or the no man's land, you know, between the lungs and the spine. But the reality of it is the lungs touch the spine the spine is just much lower in the back than many hunters realize. So it's very possible to shoot above the spine and not have a lethal shot because, you know, there, there's there's no major organs there and there's very little uh, vascularization in there. You know, not a lot of arteries. So 
you get a, you know, usually some chunks of meat, you get some blood from there, but it dries up very quickly. Deer heals very quickly. So is it possible to shoot them, you know, high in the body, not get them? Absolutely. But you're not hitting lungs. You're, you're above the lungs. And in fact, you're above the spine as well. Right. And, and you'll hear, you know, some people argue, well, what about, you know, when their when their lungs contract, it, it creates that that space between the spine and the lungs. But that that's not factual as well either, is it? You're exactly right. Certainly those lungs contract some, but it's not creating a big void uh, by any means. And now think about this too. You know, you have to have a sealed chamber, you know, that being the, the chest cavity to be able to regulate the pressure to, to work those lungs back and forth. And, uh, and that's why if you shoot a deer, particularly with a bow, say a deer that's quartering away, uh, if you shoot it through that diaphragm, if you cut the diaphragm, then that is a, you know, a good shot because once there's a hole there, that deer can't regulate that pressure the way that it, it's supposed to be able to. Hence, it can't breathe normally. The lungs aren't working right. So if, if somebody says, well, if the lungs are contracted, you know, when you shoot it, you can even, that, that's not true. But even if it was, you're still putting a hole through that chest cavity and you would, you know, then not allow that deer to regulate the pressure in there necessary to make the lungs work right. So. Um, I certainly see where that comes from and how people can say that, but in reality, that, that's just simply that's just simply not true. Yeah, and and while we're discussing shot placement, I guess can you go ahead and touch on ideal shot placement? Now, sure. I know you know we have a video that discusses this on our YouTube channel. It's a little easier to see if you have a, some visual cues there, but uh, just you know while while we're on the subject, can you give us a quick quick overview on that? Yeah. And you know what? This is this is not where, where, where I shoot today, where I teach people to shoot is not where I was taught. Uh, you know, when I started, you know, I was always taught, you know, behind that front leg and you know, or you look for the crease behind the leg. Let's throw all that out. And we'll say this. First of all, I'm not saying this is the only place that you can shoot a deer to kill it. There's lots of places you can. But I firmly believe today that what I'm going to suggest here is the best place to aim. And, uh, and it's also the easiest place to, to tell in the field, whether you're a young hunter, an old hunter, a new hunter, experienced hunter, whatever. Uh, and that is come on a deer that is broadside, come right up the front leg, halfway up the body. So if you figure, you know, take a line right up the front leg and then you draw another line right across the middle of the body. So it kind of cuts the body in half. So you have a vertical line up the front leg, a horizontal line across the body. Where those two meet, that's where you pull the trigger uh, with a firearm. And the reason that is so good is because where those lines meet, that is right at the top of the heart. So if you shoot there, you will hit the top of the heart, you will hit both lungs, and there's a whole series of nerves that come together right there. And then so if you hit that spot, that deer will literally drop right there. Uh, it will not run. There's no blood trail. You're not, you know, it's not getting into the weeds. It's not getting into the woods. It's not getting across the line to the neighbors. The deer will literally go straight down dead. That is perfect. That's exactly what we want. And the nice thing with that too is you, it provides the maximum opportunity for air on your part and still have a killing shot. Meaning if you aim for that spot, you can miss a couple inches high, a couple inches low, a couple inches to the right or to the left and still have a very lethal shot. So, so that is a great place. And the kicker is you, you ruin minimal meat by, by hitting them there. So it's not like you're ruining a lot of meat. So from my perspective, 
there is no reason to aim anywhere else on a deer when you're shooting with a firearm. Now with a bow, what I tell people is, because they immediately say, oh no, you have to be behind that front leg because <laughs> there's that big shoulder bone there. Well, many hunters think that that leg bone and that shoulder, you know, continues straight up the deer, but that's not true. Once you get to the body, that leg bone runs forward and then angles back. So there's a huge hole right over top of where the heart is in those lungs. So the, the hip point is the same with a bow. But what I tell people is rather than aiming right there halfway up the body, I aim in the lower one third because we've all seen videos of where deer hear that arrow coming and they drop down. They really dip. So I still want to hit them at the same spot, but because they move after I shoot, I actually aim a little bit lower, but that is still a perfect place to hit a deer with a bow. Minimal blood trail expires as quickly as possible, and it makes it easiest for you to recover. Yeah, and, and even if they don't drop, you're still you're still in the money there. So Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. Well, good deal. Like I said, we, we, you did a, a great video on that. And walk people through exactly where to where to make those shot placements, and that's uh, that's on our YouTube channel for anybody that that wants to check that out. But um, here, here's another one that I've I've seen a lot in my social media feed recently. You know, the last week or two, we we got some nice cooler temperatures in across a lot of the country, and uh, man, I, I definitely welcome that down here in Georgia. Uh, feels a little more like fall than it than it did summer there for so long. But um, you know, a lot of a lot of guys get get fired up when those those cold fronts roll in they want to get in the woods and hey I, i'm one of those guys you know when when those cold fronts come in um i'm wanting to be out there if nothing else just because it's so much more comfortable to be in the woods but i guess the the question is or the expectation does does that cold front really get the deer or bucks or, or deer in general up on their feet that's a great question and you know what we had our first frost this morning uh, which is a little late for us. We normally have one earlier in September. And the first thing I think is, oh, it's time to go hunt. So, so <laughs> I get it. You know, I've been a biologist for a long time, but man, I am first and foremost a deer hunter. So uh, I, I totally get where hunters come from with this. And I certainly know what I think of with this. And, uh, and you know, growing up in the North, I love to hunt when it's cold. Um, however, we know more today about deer movement patterns than ever before. Uh, the use of GPS technology on, on radio collars allows us not only to be able to find deer at any, at any given time, but it allows us to collect a tremendous amount of information on how far they move each day, where they move. Those collars, in many cases, have uh, sensors on them to detect side-to-side -side deer head movement, up-and-down movement, so we know if deer are feeding or not, or if, you know, when they're truly bedded and at rest, we can have the temperature logged into those. So we know more than ever before. And unfortunately, there's a lot of old wives tales that we used to think about deer movement patterns that are, that are going by the wayside. Um, I, I firmly believe that our forefathers were better woodsmen than, than many folks today. But when it comes to actual knowledge about deer biology and, and movement patterns, we, we know far more today than ever before. So the cold front thing is, is a big one because hunters believe Man, when it's colder, deer are on their feet and moving. And I'm sorry to say, all you know, the millions and millions of data points and GPS collars do not support that at all. Um, and if you think about it, deer can't just move more when it's when it's cold. You know, they need to feed every day. So, you know, they're moving during the day. 
course, when the rut is here, they're moving to breed. So it doesn't mean you shouldn't go hunting when it's cold, but I think what we tend to see a lot more of that is a lot of people kill deer that are being bumped by other hunters in the woods or, you know, we're, we're pushing deer from one place to another. And when we get these cold fronts, more hunters go afield. So in many cases, then they are, because there's more hunters afield, they're bumping deer. And then, so more people see those. So the perception is it's a cold front, deer on their feet. And the reality of it is that the data will say, you know what, that's not really true at all. Those deer, you know, this weekend in Pennsylvania, you know, if it's 30 degrees, if it's 50 degrees, if it's 60 degrees, deer are likely going to be moving the exact same amount as a hunter. I'm going to enjoy it a lot more if it's 30 or 40 as opposed to being warmer. But, but man, but deer are still moving. They might be in some different spots. If it's warmer, they might take advantage of, of more shade. They might be on a cool side of a ridge. They might be lower where there's more of a breeze along a creek or something like that. So they certainly react to the temperature, uh, but they're, they're on their feet and moving just like they, they are w w when it's a little bit cooler. So uh, that's one of the old wise tales we can get rid of. I say still go hunting when, it, when it's nice and cool and enjoy it. But, but if it's not cool and you have a chance to go, hey, I think you should still go hunting then too because there's a really good chance those deer are still going to be moving. Absolutely. Yep, you can't you can't kill them sitting at home on the couch. So <laughs> just get out there every every chance you get. While we're talking about, I guess, weather impacting deer movement, um, let's let's touch on another another popular belief among hunters, and that's the influence of the moon on deer movement. Um, what what does the research tell us about you know whether the moon has any influence on on when and and how much these deer move? Yeah, this is a, this is an interesting one because hunters are always looking for some little edge, uh, you know, to either help them pick better days to go hunting or, you know, you have limited time to hunt. So let's make sure that I can maximize, you know, opportunity to see or kill deer when I'm going. So, man, so I definitely get it. Um, the moon impacts a lot of things like fish. Um, certainly fish feeding patterns can be can be dictated by moon phase. Um so a lot of people want to transfer that same thing to deer movement. And, but they need to realize, you know, deer are a little bit different. You know, deer are crepuscular in that, you know, most of their movement is a, is a dawn and dusk. Fish are not crepuscular. So moon affects fish movement very differently, you know, than deer movement. Um, some of those same GPS uh, studies that we just talked about with regard to temperature allows us to test, hey, you know, how does the moon phase affect that because we have the data here. Now let's look at, you know, daily movement patterns, length of, of movement, all of that. And just as we can compare it to temperature, we can compare it to moon phase. And what they find is there are minimal differences based on moon phase. Where, where the moon is can, can influence maybe if deer move a little bit earlier in the day or a little bit later, but it is not these big swings like many hunters believe. So, you know, uh, Similar to the temperature in, if you have the chance to go hunting, go. You know, don't let that moon phase necessarily affect choosing to, to go afield or not. And, you know, the extreme case of that is the old adage. And, and I grew up hearing this from my father and my grandfather and my uncles as well, is that if it's a full moon, deer will feed all night, which means the next yeah. day will be a terrible day hunt because <laughs> since they fed all night, they're bedded all day. And uh, the data very clearly shows that is absolutely false. <laughs> that is not true at all. There, there is no big drop off in movement the day after a full moon, you know, because they have fed all night. So it makes a good story. Um, but 
you know, the, the data does not support that at all. So what I tell folks is, because some people really get into the moon end of it. And I say, hey, you know what? If you love to study moon phases and develop a strategy around that, and you've had some success in the past, hey, keep doing it. You know, the, it's not saying it's wrong, but just realize that part of your success probably is because you believe it, which then just makes you hunt a little bit harder. So your success is probably more dictated by you were hunting harder. You were more alert on stand than necessarily what that moon did. Kind of like your favorite fishing lure. You know, you catch more fish on that partly because when you have it on your line, you fish that just a little bit harder than you do some of the other lures. Same thing with the moon. And uh, there's, there's lots of data to show that, yeah, that, that, that whole moon phase is not impacting deer movements to anywhere near the same degree that, uh, that a lot of hunters believe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're hunting more because of certain moon phases or because of that cold front or whatever, yeah, you're, you're going to see more <laughs> during those times if that's when you're spending your time in the woods. So, yeah, that makes sense. Well, that's while right. we're on, I think the take home of that is, is if there's something that you're using that you consistently have success, like, hey, we're not going to argue with success. Keep doing it. But I, I don't plan my hunts around that. We'll say that. And I don't plan my vacation if I'm going to travel to hunt around moon phase, uh, not, not in the least. That doesn't even factor into it. I may plan them a little bit around weather only because I like to hunt more when it's cooler, not because I necessarily think deer are moving more. I just enjoy being out there more when it's cooler, but uh, I absolutely do not plan my hunts uh, around the moon. Well, before, before we get off the topic of the moon, what about the moon in the rut? You know, a, a lot of deer hunters seek out, again, those certain moon phases around the typical rut timing, thinking that's going to trigger either trigger the rut to kick off or an increase in rut activity. Uh, any, any link at all between the moon and the timing of the rut? This one is crystal clear from the data. The, the whole moon and movement thing, there's slight differences. As far as the moon and the rut goes, there is zero impact on the rut by the moon. Um, and w the way we know this is we have fetal scales. We can pull fetuses from does harvested, you know, late winter or roadkill does in the spring. We can measure them on that fetal scale. And from that, we can determine the exact day that that doe was bred. So then if you do that with enough does in an area, you're able to, to very quickly calculate exactly when the peak rut for an area is, as well as, you know, the entire rut, because there's always some does that come in early and some that come in very late. But with whitetails, the majority of deer are bred over a pretty short window. So if you do that, you can then take a look at, okay, let's look at these breeding dates. Now let's compare them to what moon, you know, what the moon phase is or, or when that full moon was in the fall. And if you do that over enough years, that moon will swing widely one way, you know, early and then late. But you can see, man, those rut dates, they hold very, very consistent. So they don't move much at all. So there's been lots and lots of studies on this from New Brunswick to Florida and across the U.S. So uh, it is very, very clear that the, the moon has absolutely no influence on when deer are actually being bred. So maybe a little bit on some of the movement, not a lot on movement, maybe a little on movement, but absolutely none on when those deer are actually breeding. Any, any other influences on as far as the timing of the rut, weather, anything else? Or Yeah, with that, we used to think that if it's warmer, it was delayed a little bit, you know, because those deer just didn't move as much. And as we've already talked in here, we know now that's not true. Those deer are still moving. 
Um, sure, they're in winter coat, and uh, if it's warmer, you know they they're going to be hotter. But the the need for those fawns to hit the ground at the optimum optimum time in the spring just drives everything that happens in the fall. So if it's warm. It's not like those deer say, well, okay, we'll wait a week or two and just let our fawns hit the ground late in the spring. They can't because they are at such a disadvantage if that happens. So as far as the actual dates of the rut, you know, I can tell you in, in Pennsylvania, you know, where I am this year, man, most of the does are going to be bred between, you know, uh, early to mid-November, like, a you know, a 10-day period there. And next year, it's going to be exactly the same. And the year after that, it's going to be exactly the same, regardless of how warm or cold it is regardless of where the moon is, regardless of anything else, just because, you know, deer have evolved over, you know, how they've been with us the last couple of, you know, a million years. So during that time, they have evolved such a fine system of breeding at the right time to maximize chance for those fawns. Well, first of all, for the does to be able to carry the fawns in pregnancy and then be able to feed them once they hit the ground that, uh, you know, a little bit of warm weather, a little bit of cold weather one day or one way or the other, you know, this year or next year, that's not going to move that rut at all. So not in the least. So what I tell people is it's a little warm. Yeah. Some people say, well, I'm not going to go today. I say, hey, you know, when Halloween hits in many regions of the country, that really flips the switch for the rut. So by gosh, you better be ready if you went on the rut at the end of October and then that first week in November. I don't care if it's 20, 30, 50, or 60 degrees, be in the woods because those deer are going to be breeding and, uh, and you're going to have a chance to, you know, to see some of that activity and kill them. There you go. Well, one more thing here, I guess, as far as deer movement goes, one more, one more myth to bust. Uh, what about nocturnal bucks? You know, you'll, you'll hear hunters talk about, you know, maybe an older buck they've been watching and, and they'll hear you'll hear them refer to him as, uh, uh, you know, he's he's gone nocturnal. He's only moving at nighttime. I'm only getting pictures of him at nighttime, so he's only moving at nighttime. But I mean, are bucks ever truly nocturnal? There's, I will say, no. Bucks don't want to be nocturnal. This is one though that there is some truth to. Um, and we, well, the nocturnal movement pattern is caused directly by us. So. If we are not pressuring bucks, if we are not influencing them in a negative manner, they're not smelling us, they don't know we're there, um, they will follow you know, a very typical crepuscular pattern. Maximum activity at daylight and then again at dusk. And then some movement during the day. They still have to get up to eat. They're still going to get up to relieve themselves. They're still going to get up to move a little bit. And if we don't put any pressure on them, they tend to move a little bit more during the day. They're never going to move as much during the day as they do at dawn and dusk, but there is some daytime movements. However, with the whole, yep, he's nocturnal, that absolutely can be true for, for certain bucks and areas because as soon as we start, in many cases, hanging cameras and checking them and driving ATVs and we're traipsing through their area and we're hunting them, as soon as we add all of that human scent and all that human pressure, Deer behavior changes almost immediately. They react very quickly to that. You know, the first time you go into an area, that buck doesn't become, you know, strictly nocturnal. However, once he realizes, wow, um, there's a lot more activity here, human activity or predator activity, there's a lot more scent. Um, suddenly, yeah, he's going to change how much he moves during the day. He will move less during the day. He will move more at night. And every single hunter can see this if they hunt food plots throughout the course of the year, opening day. Man, you see deer in the food plot, you know, 
Then you spook them when you get down. Next day, yeah, you don't see quite as many. You know, by the end of the year, there's almost nothing coming out until after dark. Those deer are reacting to the pressure that we're applying. Bucks are exactly the same way. So bucks don't become nocturnal because there's something instinctual in them. They become nocturnal because they are reacting to the pressure that we're applying on them. So, so that is one that absolutely can happen and does happen. And uh, it's because of, uh, of what, what we're doing uh, in and around those areas. Yeah. Yeah, but you're saying, I mean, even one that's pressured like that, they have to get up and feed and, and relieve themselves still, right? I mean, they just might not be traveling far, very far at all. That, that they're, is they're true. Still, yep, yeah. you're right. And uh, so that part is true. And they also will change or can change where they uh, are in cover during the day. So, for example, you take a deer that's, that's not being pressured at all, um, he may spend more of the day in cover that's not as dense, maybe cover that's a little closer to food. Um, however, as soon as he's being pressured, he may move during those daylight hours into areas that are extremely thick, extremely secure, and where he has gotten in and where he avoids the pressure. He knows that people are not there. So, you know, everybody has seen deer in neighborhoods. You know, you can go to any suburban area in the country that has deer and, and watch mature bucks in neighborhoods, you know, walking through. But as soon as you try to start hunting those or you, you know, mess with those deer, even those deer react very quickly and will want to avoid humans. So deer, you know, in more rural areas that you know, are far more wild, um, they just react much quicker. So they're getting to areas that are just a lot thicker and have less, you know, of intrusion from our end. So, so you're right, Brian, those bucks will still get up during the day. They still have to feed still relieve themselves, but they just end up in areas that are a lot thicker and are more removed from human scent and human pressure. Okay. Well, let's, let's move from, from deer movement myth to some more kind of, I guess, hunting strategy related ones or, or management related ones. Um, when it comes to harvest strategy and, and shooting does, uh, one of the most common, I, I guess, theories I hear uh, hunters say is, is, hey, don't, don't shoot those does. Uh, especially early season before the rut, because the more does you have, you know, the more bucks you're going to have when the rut rolls around. You know, th- those duck, those does are your buck magnets. Um, is there any is there any truth to that, or is that is that flawed thinking? Uh, in most of the whitetails range, that's flawed thinking. Um, there that is that can be true in some areas. In those areas, would be places where the deer density is just really, really low. Um, way below what the habitat can support. So what that means is if there's very, very few deer in the landscape, then having them around during the rut can be beneficial. Um, the reality of it is there's not a lot of places in the United States uh, that, that meet that criteria anymore, you know, as deer herds continue to grow. So if you're in an area that just has really, really low density deer herds, then there is some truth to that. Uh, I'll grant you that. However, most of the U.S. is not in that situation. Um, and certainly if you're in an area that has, you know, abundant deer, that is flawed thinking because what you really want to have and what we as hunters, we think about is, man, we want to see bucks on their feet. We want to see them cruising. We want to see them moving so they can go by our stand. That happens a lot more when there is more competition for breeding and when they have to move more to find out. If you're in a situation where there's lots of does, 
Sure, they're magnets for bucks, but bucks don't have to move very far to find them, which means once they do find them, they often spend time with them. They don't move along a long way, you know, while that doe is actually an estrus. So our chances of seeing them diminish greatly. So we don't want bucks to have an easy time finding does. We want them to have to work for it a little bit, you know, and travel. So most of the U.S. situation where, yeah, we have a bunch of deer, you actually, we help ourselves as hunters if we remove some of those does before the rut. So then there's not as many left. So those bucks have to work and, you know, a little bit harder to find one or a little bit harder to keep one. That makes, you know, calling tactics more successful. I love to grunt. I love to rattle while we're hunting. That stuff all works better when there's more competition for breeding and more competition for breeding happens when we remove, uh, you know, more of those does early in the season prior to the rut. Okay. And and along those same lines, you know, I sometimes hear a hunter advise, uh, this, this is one of my favorites, don't shoot a doe late in the season because she, she's pregnant and you're killing multiple deer at that point. So that, that one always makes me scratch my head a little, but I'll, I'll let you talk about why that's, that's not really an issue. Yeah, I'm with you on this one. Um, you know, and this, I think this stems from the early days of deer management programs where many deer herds were below what the habitats could support. So we were actively trying to grow deer herds. Um, so every doe was so important because she was carrying, you know, additional or fawns that would be additional deer next year. So from the days, you know, when it was buck only seasons or really limited antlerless seasons, that was one of the, the strategies involved that they would say, one of the reasons not to shoot those does is because she, you know, that's the breeding stock and then you're killing extra deer. Now, the reality of it is a lot of those fawns are going to die anyway. Um, in general, across the United States, about 50% of all the fawns born are going to be dead before the, you know, that deer season. Some places, a few more survive, some places, you know, less survive, but, you know, on average, that's about it. So what we know is that the healthier that doe is, uh, the more likely that fawn is to survive because she is healthier. She provides more milk for him. Balanced deer herd means everybody has a little better habitat. So there's better places to hide. So if you're in an area that has very few deer, then yeah, there's a better chance more of her fawns will survive. However, for most of the U.S., that is not a, you know, a good reason to not shoot that deer. You know, if you're in a situation where you need to shoot antlerless deer, go ahead and shoot them. It doesn't matter if it's early or late. It's better if it's early, but at least make sure that you shoot the appropriate number by the end of season so that the ones that are left, you know, have more high quality food, better cover. You actually will recruit more fawns in that scenario than if, you know, you try to save all these antlerless deer under the guise, you know, that, yeah, they have, they're going to have more fawns. So, you know, 50 to 100 years ago, there was definitely value in not shooting those does or not shooting them late in the year today. Um, for 99% of the whitetails range, that simply doesn't apply. It's far more important and you will do more good for those future fawns by making sure you shoot the right number of antlerless deer during the deer season. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess the, the point I always try to get across to them is, you know, whether you shoot her late in the season when she is carrying a fetus or you shoot her early in the season before she's bred, the, the end result's the same. You know, that's that's a doe that's not going to be on the landscape next season and, you know, a fawn or two fawns or, or whatever the case may be. But um, 
Yeah. No, you're you know, right. And you know what? One thing we should mention too is um, another benefit of harvesting them early in the year. We talked about the benefits to, you know, to the, the rut hunting that you'll have, but think about all the food she's going to eat from early to late. You know, that time of year, deer are packing on uh, pounds so that they have all that fat to go into winter on. Now, granted, deer in Florida aren't adding a lot of fat, but deer in most of the range in the United States, you know, add that heavy layer of fat. And that's what, you know, in large part, they live off during the winter. Um, you know, even when they have access to other feed, they're living off that fat. So they eat minimum of, you know, five pounds of high quality food a day. So you know, think about like in Georgia where you are, if you shoot a doe, say September 1st versus November 1st, the difference of 60 days, I think 60 days, you know, five pounds of food a day, you know, that's 300 pounds of food that you've saved, you know, that 300 pounds that other deer can eat. Or if you shoot two does, you know, now 600 pounds, you can quickly see that as hunters, if we shoot those does earlier in the year, we can save a tremendous amount of food for the other deer that are there. And if those other deer that are there get more food, that means the does will be bigger and heavier. They'll produce more milk for their fawns and bucks will be bigger and heavier and have bigger antlers. And uh, I don't know about the guys and the girls that you hunt with, Brian, but uh, man, the people I hunt with, they, they like bigger antlers and, and bigger deer. <laughs> that's, that's always a good thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, yeah, that's a great point. You know, something most of us don't really think about, you know, when it comes to shooting does early. But, yeah, saving that food resource. Another um, another common, I guess, variable that, that we look at when managing a deer herd is the, the buck to doe ratio. And I sometimes hear people talk about, you know, that ratio being way off. And, and I think a lot of times it's they're basing that on, you know, observations from the stand. But they'll say, you know, well, my, my buck to doe ratio is, you know, one, one buck to 10 does or one buck to 20 does. But, you know, that, that's pretty unusual. In fact, it's, it's just about impossible to get that far out of, out of balance, isn't it? Yep, you're exactly right. And, and I think what people do there is they confuse the observed sex ratio with what the actual sex ratio is. Um, as long as you're having fawns and fawns are being recruited into a deer herd, it really can't get worse than uh, than about one adult doe for every, I'm sorry, one adult buck for every three or four adult does. And the, the reason for that is because you add in, you know, those fawns become recruited each year and it brings that balance right back, you know, in many cases, you know, one and a half to two adult does per adult buck. Now, but what hunters need to know from this perspective is, and, and they oftentimes don't really care about what the actual ratio is. They just care about what the observed ratio is. Like, how many bucks am I actually seeing? Now, that can get a little skewed just because, you know, there's a visibility bias against bucks. You know, if you take five bucks and five does and put them in your office right now, even then you wouldn't observe them at a one-to-one -one ratio. <laughs> Somehow, those bucks would hide to the point where, you know, you wouldn't see them the same. So, there's a, a it's more difficult. And... So many times we as hunters end up counting fawns as does, you know, as an adult doe, which makes the ratio seem more skewed. So, you know, you look at a bunch of deer in the field and you think, God, to count five does and only one buck. Well, there's a good chance, you know, of those five does, you know, at least a couple of them are fawns. So the actual observe ratio is, is a little closer than what it seems. So what I tell people is, hey, sex ratios are certainly important. Um, What's more important than just the sex ratio though is what's the age structure of that sex ratio? Because even if you had a very balanced, say a one-to-one -one sex ratio, but all of your bucks were yearlings, that's not a very healthy situation. So, you know, let's make sure we have deer in all age classes. That's far healthier. 
And then from the observed sex ratio standpoint, there are definite things that we can do as hunters to, to help balance that. Things like shoot at least as many antlerless deer as we do bucks, you know, shoot those antlerless deer earlier in the year so that that ratio is more balanced as we get into the rut. So there's definite things that we can do to help ourselves there. Um, but I think it's important for hunters to realize the actual ratio is always more balanced than the observed. And uh, the observed ratio can certainly give you a feel for, for what's going on in an area. And many times it tells us more about which deer we're shooting than, what, than what's really there. And oftentimes real skewed ratios means we're focusing solely or almost solely on bucks and not doing a good enough job shooting the appropriate number of antlerless deer. Yep. Yeah, we, we, we may, it may just be a good sign that, that you're not hunting in the right areas. You know, if, if you're seeing large numbers of does and, and you're not seeing, seeing bucks, um, it, it may just, you know, be, you, you just need to shift where you're putting your efforts in. So. Yeah. And you know what? There's that cool new research out of Auburn, um, you know, that's just looking at doe and buck or doe versus buck use of food plots. Um, I'll, I'll agree with folks who if you're only hunting food plots and, you know, and you tend to see a lot more does in there than bucks. Heck, yeah. Um, I see the same thing in many areas that has less to do with the actual sex ratios out there in some cases and more to do with, you know, movement patterns of the different sexes where bucks just don't tend to be in those food plots during daylight hours at anywhere near the same rate that does are. So, you know, if you're only hunting those type of areas, it's very possible to see a real skewed sex ratio on an area, even if the area has a pretty balanced sex ratio, simply because of where you're choosing to go hunting. And, uh, you know, maybe areas like that, that bucks just actively avoid once pressure has been applied, uh, you know, to them during the hunting season. Absolutely. Yeah. And for anybody that, that is a, an interesting study. And, uh, if anybody wants to read up more on that, uh, our own Lindsay Thomas just did a article on that on the website that, that talks about that study and, and, uh, yeah, the use of, of food plots during daylight hours by, by bucks versus does and, uh, good, good stuff, good, interesting research that can definitely apply to us as deer hunters. So definitely check that out. This next one, yeah. I feel like we're we're beating a dead horse with this one. I know we've we've done a lot on this on our uh, through articles on our website, and even had a, a podcast episode on this previously. But you know, I always think it's worth worth bringing up because there's there's still plenty of hunters out there that think that that shooting or, or culling bucks with small racks or or maybe a messed up rack is going to somehow improve their their deer herd. Can you touch on that a little bit? Sure. And you know what? I just got a, a picture yesterday from uh, a friend. Um, sent me a picture of a buck. Same thing. The guys at his camp are arguing half of them that he should be shot <laughs> and the other half not that they ought to let him uh, to try to continue to grow um, simply because of this whole genetic thing. So this this even though with all of the studies on this, there's still lots of questions about this and, uh, and lots of interest. So which is good. You know, it provides a good opportunity to engage hunters on this. Um, here's what I say to this. And, you know, there's, there has been a tremendous number of research projects in Texas on this and in other states. And many times, Texas is very different than, than much of the country. And uh, deer management can be one of those situations, partly just because of the intensive nature that uh, so much of, of deer in Texas are managed under. And part of it because of so many, you know, captive facilities and breeding facilities. 
that you know we see very little of or, or none of in other parts of the country. So the argument here is, hey, if I see a buck that has antlers that I think are below average for our area, if we remove that deer, then I will have improved the antler genetics in my area and I will see bigger bucks because of it. And if you think about it, man, it seems to make sense. So I can totally understand how hunters buy into that. But the research is very clear on this one as well. And, and I'll give you the punchline first and then, and then I'll explain it. In the wild, we can do nothing to influence antler genetics positively or negatively by selective harvest. So removing that deer that you think has below average antlers, that's not helping things. Leaving that deer that you think has above average antlers, that's not changing the antler genetics either. And here's why. The way the whitetails breed is very different than elk or Alaskan moose where, you know, the bulls get a harem, the biggest bull breeds all of them. With deer, that's not like that. You know, the whitetail breeding ecology is such that the, the rut, most does are bred over a pretty short period of time, which means a lot of the bucks get to do the breeding. So there's not a dominant buck that's monopolizing all the breeding in an area. So if you have a buck with really big antlers, you know, he's not fathering all the, the fawns or siring all the fawns in that area. That just doesn't happen that way in whitetails. Yearlings and two-year-old bucks, uh, you know, they get in on a fair amount of the breeding, even when you have really good age structures. So one, dominant bucks cannot monopolize the breeding. So even if you have bucks out there with the biggest antlers doing all, you know, you're hoping to do all the breeding, they won't. One-year-old and two-year-old bucks are still going to breed some. And the DNA work with this shows that in most situations, you know, there's a lot of bucks that literally will not sire more than one or two fawns in their lifetime. Now think about that. They might breed a lot more does than that. But we said earlier here, you know, on average, about half of the fawns die during the first year of life anyway. So when we talk about a, a buck siring a fawn that's recruited into the deer herd, that means he's, he's about six months old and he's alive, you know, that fall when the hunting season starts. You know, one year later, he'll grow his first set of antlers. So most bucks literally don't sire more than one or two fawns that are recruited in the deer herd in their lifetime. And of those, you figure about every other fawn born is a doe fawn. So, you know, a lot of bucks never sire a son that, that's recruited. So that's one reason that you just can't uh, influence antler genetics by selective removal through breeding. Also, we know now, and this is some really cool work that Donnie Drager and his colleagues out of Texas looked at. We used to think that if a buck has big antlers, then his sons will have big antlers. And if a buck has small antlers, his sons will have small antlers. And we know now that is not true at all. They captured thousands of bucks, followed them through their course of their life and you know, would recapture many of them each year. And they measured antlers. And what they found is the, the breeding value or the heritability essentially of, of a deer with big antlers or little antlers you know, if, if the breeding value was high for that, that would mean bucks with big antlers have sons with big antlers and vice versa. But what they found is that that's not true at all. A buck with big antlers, his son may have little antlers. So the father's antler size does not dictate what the son's going to have. Meaning a buck with little antlers can have a, a son or a fawn, a buck fawn with big antlers or vice versa. So bucks aren't having many sons anyway. In of those they have, we can't predict what that fawn, a buck fawn will have for antlers based on the, the size of his dad's antlers. So because of those, in the wild, 
there is absolutely nothing that we can do to influence antler genetics. Where the, the real confusion comes in is people see this in a pen and do, do genetics play into antlers? Absolutely they do. But they do so in a pen situation where you can control which buck breeds which doe. They know the does that tend to throw large antlered fawns, buck fawns, you know, because through trial and error, they see, they test which ones and, okay, this doe is good. So let's match her with a buck that they also, through trial and error, know has big antlered sons. So that way they can match the individual buck and doe. So that's how you influence antler genetics. And you can do so in a captive situation, but you cannot do so uh, in the wild. And a good way to describe it, and Bronson Strickland, Dr. Strickland from Mississippi State University is the one that, uh, that I heard say this first. And I think it's a great way for hunters to understand. If you take a paradise, so you got two dies, right? Each one has the numbers one to six on it and you roll them. What is the chances that you will roll an 11 or a 12? It's pretty low probability, right? You can't roll 11 or 12 once in a while, but not very often. Deer breeders or people in captivity, they manipulate the dice. You've seen the fake dice where one of them, every number on it is a five or a six. You know, the other one, every number is a five or six. So every time you roll them, the least number you can get is a 10. So the chances of getting 11 or 12 are much greater because you've manipulated the dice, right? You got fake dice. That's exactly how they have these huge antlers in captivity because deer breeders manipulate the dice. They pick a certain buck that they know has a record of big antlers, a certain doe, they match those two, and then they throw out all the other variables that actually happen in the wild. So the genetics count? Absolutely. And you can influence them in captivity, but you cannot influence them in the wild. So that's why selectively calling wild bucks, well, you may remove deer that you don't want on landscape, and there's value in that, but you are not enhancing those antler genetics the least little bit by doing so. Yeah, yep. And uh, yeah, I actually got to to talk to to Donnie back on episode five, I think it was, and we did a deep dive into his, I think, 13 years of research down there in Texas. So if anybody, you know, really wants to hear a lot more about that and uh, his his research, you can check out episode five of, of the podcast. But uh, yeah, Donnie's a super interesting guy and definitely knows his stuff when it comes to deer genetics. So. He is. You know, the funny part is, you know, I can talk about the reason culling doesn't work in Pennsylvania and I can get people riled up. You can talk about them in Georgia and get them riled up, or you and I can travel the country and get folks riled up. But think about how riled up Donnie got them in Texas by telling them it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's a whole nother level, you know, of, of the culling game. So uh, I think, you know what, if he can do that in Texas and convince folks, man, I ought to be able to do it uh, in these other states as well. So uh, yeah, <laughs> that's, but that's right. a great question. And that's obviously something very interesting to hunters. And I guess while we're talking about, you know, bucks with small racks. Uh, we, we had another TikTok video here recently that that went viral, where Lindsey Thomas showed showed a graphic that had four or five years worth of of antlers from a single buck that lived in, I believe it was Mississippi State University's deer lab facility, and the deer started out life as a a small spike, and then you know by the by the time he reached four and a half years old, he was a a pretty respectable ten point. And of course, you know, Lindsay's point was just because this deer starts life as a spike doesn't mean that he's always going to be a spike. And uh, so, so can you touch on that myth? Sure. And you know what? We don't hear this one as much anymore. So that's a good thing. 
but we still do hear it. And uh, this used to be a real popular one. And it goes back to the days when very few deer ever made it past one and a half. So, you know, there was, you know, very few made it to two, almost none made it to three. The situation is very, very different today. You know, where the majority of bucks that we kill today are at least three years old. You know, we kill a higher percentage of bucks in that three and a half and older age class than those that are one or those that are two. So very different world today. Um, what folks used to think is, man, if that buck started as a spike, must be something in his genes and he'd never get any, any better. Um, but we know very clearly that is not true. Deer can start with spikes and, you know, and grow to be very large, you know, antler deer uh, in future years. Um, one thing with that is because there's so much that influences that first set of antlers. So, for example, take a deer, um, maybe from an area and you can pick any state you want. Uh, say you have a buck fawn that has the genetics to have the biggest antlers in the whole state. I mean, he's just, you know, he's got everything. However, let's say he was born to a doe that was kind of low on the pecking order. They got bred a little late. It was a terrible winter, a late spring green up. So this mother was relegated, you know, to one of the, the worst fawning areas. Um, not a good growing season that first year. Everything is against that buck, you know, so he can't express what he's going to have, you know, in the future during that first set of antlers. And we know that the buck's first set of antlers tells very little about what their future antler potential is. Almost everything in that first year is more environmentally related. Was it an easy winter or hard winter? Early green up, late green up. Was his mother a dominant doe and had the best fawning area? You know, we're one of the lowest on the pecking order and had the worst. That's typically what we see in that first set. So there's a lot of bucks, buck, you know, one and a half year old bucks, first set of antlers, that just got off to a bad start in life, you know, as a fawn that they're just trying to catch up and almost all the nutrition goes to body growth. So just very little ends up growing to their antlers, which means that first set of antlers is pretty small. So just because he's a, well, in the past, then we would think, well, must be, that's all he can do. Today, we understand that the reason for that is because, you know, he just didn't have the resources to put to, to body growth, et cetera, first. So there's just very little that went to antlers. So. Today, we know don't judge a buck by, you know, that first set of antlers. We can tell very little about future antler development. We can start telling a lot more once he turns two and a half and uh, certainly then a lot more by three and a half. But uh, yeah, very few deer, very, very few deer are genetic spikes, meaning they're going to be spikes their whole life. You know, you shoot a deer, you know, a mature deer, that's a spike. That's, that's about as rare as killing, you know, a Boone and Crockett deer. So a lot. They'll once a spike, always a spike thing is not, there's not the least bit of truth to that. And uh, fortunately, um, many fewer hunters believe that today. So we're making some headway there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I'd initially planned on us busting 10 deer hunting myths and, and we've done that, but I do want to finish up, I guess, with a, with a bonus one here. Uh, Cause I still hear, hear this one a good bit. Got, even got some friends that I've been out with, you know, scouting or hunting and, and, and Cena mentioned this, but, um, you know, there, there's, I guess, a couple myths surrounding deer identification, specifically being able to tell, you know, if the sign that you're seeing was made by a doe or a buck by either the, the deer track or by the droppings. So can you talk about that? Can you, can you determine the sex of a deer from, from its track or its droppings? I was taught early on, you can tell the sex of a deer by the droppings because uh, the bucks smell like blueberries and the doe smell like strawberries. 
And, uh, I was actually told that luckily I was just smart enough as, as a young kid to, to realize my, I was being, uh, you know, picked on a little bit. Um, so let's talk about the, the droppings first. The answer is no. And, uh, you know, we can, we can assess the droppings and do some analysis and tell what the deer was eating. Uh, you know, how much was it being supplementally fed? Is it eating mostly a browse? Is it getting a lot of, uh, you know, herbaceous stuff? So we can tell things from the feces. They're even training dogs right now to be able to detect if, uh, if a deer has CWD uh, by the feces. So the feces can tell us a lot about a deer, um, but from a hunter perspective, they can't tell us whether that deer is a buck or a doe. Um, the size of the feces and the, the consistency or the shape, you know, can range anywhere from, you know, actual deer pellets looking things up to, you know, a, just a big mass that's all together, something that looks a more, lot more like bear scat. Um, that has a lot to do with what the deer is eating, the water content or the moisture content of that food, you know, during the, the spring and summer, uh, that tends to be a lot more of a mass because there's just a lot more moisture. In the winter, when they're basically eating browse and stuff that's just really dry and lignified, you know, the feces tend to be much drier and just a lot more like pellets. Um, so there's certainly some size difference or can be between smaller deer and larger deer, but we really cannot tell the difference between doe pellets and buck pellets that way. Um, from the tracks though, the, in general, if it's an average size deer, we cannot tell the difference uh, buck and doe then either. However, as deer or bucks particularly get older and get much larger, then we can decipher some difference between the two based sh just on the sheer size. And by that, I mean, some of, you know, bucks tend to be way larger, at least mature bucks th than does do. So there are opportunities once a, a buck gets into those older age classes and is just much larger of an animal. I'm thinking, you know, particularly say Northern New England, where, you know, it's not uncommon to harvest deer that dress out over 200 pounds. You know, so those deer are, you know, we're pushing, you know, 250, 275 on the hoof. Um, their tracks are much larger than, say, you know, a hundred pound doe or 120 pound doe. So in those cases, there are definite opportunities to at least estimate, yeah, this is probably a buck or doe, but only because of the sheer size of those oldest ones. You're not telling a yearling buck from, you know, a yearling doe or a two-year-old doe or anything like that. So uh, once they get real big, there's definitely some opportunity. And there's people all over the northern U.S. that hunt by tracks. I'm thinking, you know, Adirondacks, uh, New England, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, a lot of uh, big woods hunters who, who kill deer in the snow by tracking them, you know, and following them. So uh, they certainly have a lot of experience with that and can tell a track that is most likely a buck, but they're doing so from size, mostly. But also they can start to understand some of the behavioral differences, you know, distance between the hooves, you know, as they're, as they're walking. So you can see the length of stride so they can estimate how big that deer must be to be able to do that. And then, hey, you know, is that deer spending a bunch of time, you know, are there other smaller deer tracks with it or are there a bunch of deer tracks versus does it tend to be by itself? So there's some behavioral things you can look at as well as to try to, you know, piece together that whole picture of what's going on. So definitely some opportunity for those big mature bucks to be able to separate them. But for, for most deer and certainly all the, the deer that are about the same size, um, we, we can't tell buck tracks from doe tracks in those. Got it. Yep. No, no, uh, no relation to, you know, the, the presence or absence, absence of, of dew claws, just more about the, the size then. 
Exactly. Bucks and does both have dew claws. And depending on, you know, whether the ground is dry versus if it's a little muddy, you know, you tend to see those dew claws more then as, as they're walking. Um, you can see sometimes more or less of the hoof or dew claws if a deer is running as opposed to walking. So, uh, but, but no, both sexes have, you know, two hooves on each of the feet. Both sexes have dew claws. So uh, we, we can't tell that way. Gotcha. Well, Kip, as as always, man, I appreciate your time and, uh, and enjoyed our conversation here. And hope uh, hope you and your family have a, a great 2022-2023 deer season. I know I know Bo's off to a great start, so mm-hmm. hopefully his uh, his sister will <laughs> have the opportunity to, to get caught up with him, and uh, you will as well. All right. Well, thank you. I'm certainly looking forward to that. Good luck to you. And uh, I know on your place there, as well as all the public land uh, that you hunt on, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing the stories of your uh, your saddle hunting experiences. Uh, looking forward to hearing the stories of, uh, you know, uh, you getting, uh, you know, one with your kayak and uh, into a, a water route. So uh, I think it's pretty cool all the different ways that you pursue them and, uh, you know, you look in or enjoy those experiences, you know, rather than just the actual hunt itself. It's all those experiences leading up to it and being a part of it. Uh, I think that's pretty cool and something that uh, I certainly want to add in uh, to, to what we do in, in our deer season this year, too. So, uh, yeah, good luck to you. Absolutely. I hope I hope I have some good stories to tell. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. Me as well. All right. I'll see you later, G. All right. Take care, Kip. All right, guys. That wraps up our interview with Kip Adams. Uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio. Uh, and and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Uh, or you can just go to deerassociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to uh, to future listeners. So We would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at deerassociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You can become a member. And don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show to get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free NDA hat. So be sure to take advantage of that. And, uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of of free content right there on our website covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, If it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.